This is episode 22 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 22 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. Today we sit down with Matthew Meehan, a teacher at the Heights School in Washington, D.C., and the author of Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. He recently visited Notre Dame and took time to lunch with a group of our student Soren Fellows. We chatted about the importance of cultivating wonder and imagination, as well as the role of the poet in fostering authentic human formation. Let's head into the Marion Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. Well, Mr. Meehan, thank you very much for coming to be with us. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself, about your intellectual journey. Where did you do your studies and, and what have you learned? Wow. Well, um, so I studied at the University of Dallas in undergrad, um, and I did a politics and English double major, although I missed one class in English, so they didn't give me the double major. <laughs> and uh, then I went off to teach uh, at a liberal arts boys prep school, the Heights School in Potomac, Maryland. Um, and after a few years, we knew we wanted to improve the curriculum there. And uh, when we would get together, we'd try to make speculative decisions and I kind of looked around the room like guys we're we're kind of guessing here aren't we like we need some some of us have to go back to school so a few of us did and I went and righted wrong uh, I went back to UD and got a master's in English just to sort of settle that problem <laughs> right uh, uh, and and got also uh, the PhD in literature from IPS there at UD and there I studied with uh, Jerry Wegemer at the Center for Thomas More Studies uh, and I learned a lot about Christian humanism I was the managing editor of the the online academic journal there, and I was the graduate assistant running all of their international programs for Morian study. And there I came to really learn Thomas More uh, and also um, did a dissertation on Shakespeare's play, The Book of Sir Thomas More, or just Sir Thomas More as it's known in the Shakespeare anthologies. He co-wrote it with a virulent anti-Catholic, uh, Anthony Munday, who was a priest hunter, hmm. uh, and it's a book celebrating Thomas More wow. as a man of Christian friendship and leadership opposing tyranny and uh, and uh, the misuses of and abuses of Henry VIII. It's a, wow. it's, it's a shockingly and amazingly mysterious play. It's also the only play we have in Shakespeare's hand, four whole pages of, of his playwriting, wherein More quells a riot through rhetorical speech and peaceful rhetoric. You know, artful, pacifying words. It winds up being his play about what to do for leadership. So I wrote a dissertation about Shakespeare's understanding of Thomas More and Christian humanist leadership. Wow. Yeah. And then I went back to the Heights uh, and continued. And I'm also teaching at Hillsdale sure. uh, at their Alan P. Kirby uh, Junior Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship down in D.C. So I do a lot of liberal arts, a little political philosophy, uh, English, um, and uh, sort of ars poetica, ars rhetorica. Mm -hmm. 
So your students then, you you teach both uh, at the Heights, you said it's third through 12th grade. Yes. Uh, but then you're also working with college students. What What are your students like? What are they curious about? Yeah, so I teach a sophomore high school course right now uh, that's a combination of U.S. history and American literature. But we also cheat. We teach Sir Thomas More because it's a great preparation for, you know, the the exile for religious liberty yeah. right after the abrogation of the Catholic Church under Henry, but also, you know, essentially stomping out all religious liberty of any kind yeah, um, and violating the Magna Carta and all that. Uh, so we do th- that play. We do a bunch of American literature, and then we close with the Odyssey, um, which is about travel and discovery and being a foreigner in a in a stranger in a strange land. It's mm-hmm. sort of very kind of colonial. I find them to be very inquisitive and interested in the liberal arts um, if you pitch it high enough. And uh, so that's been my experience teaching the high school boys. Is I spend more and more time every year justifying slowly and carefully why we do this for and for re, for reasons that are high and noble like sapiential questing like we want to be wise yeah so that means you have to be both witty and wise right you got to be thoughtfully clever but also mm-hmm. be knowledgeable of the good um and so yeah i've enjoyed teaching i love teaching the high schoolers because they have a lot of energy and young people are so open and passionate about like noble ideals. So right. it, sometimes they look like they're covered in ash, but you just, you know, sort of blow on, blow on it. And then if they burst into flame, like, yeah, I want right. to you know, be good and noble and, you know, like, help uh, everybody. You know, like, yeah. you know, the idealism that, that yeah. then of course blossoms when they yeah. experience freedom for the first time in a way, when they go off to college, yeah. the lack of restraint in some ways. Right. Right. That's right. Um, and then my, college students and also at Hillsdale I teach undergraduates who are there doing internships um, Mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill in different capacities but I also um, I also teach young professionals and then I run a liberal arts discussion group uh, in the Capitol building for Hill staffers Um, and uh, that's been very heartening to see a lot of young idealistic people who want to do public service Mm -hmm. And want to do it in a not-so-showy way, sort of the quiet work sure. um, that nobody notices because we like to point at all of the dumpster fires and disasters and things. <laughs> but there's actually a lot of really nobly-minded and high-spirited people who care about the good and are doing neat work. And mm-hmm. it's fun to give them the counsel of like, hey, here's what Shakespeare thinks about what public rhetoric can do to bring about peace and friendship or – hey, here's what Emily Dickinson says about how to keep a tranquil mind when you're being treated unjustly, which yeah. happens quite a bit in the <laughs> long-knived hallways and dark alleys of Capitol Hill. Of course, of course. So it's, it's fun. It's, just, it's, it's a really neat way to have kind of a dual, you know, like Colossus at Rhodes straddling the harbor, one foot <laughs> in high school, one foot in the, the college and professional teaching. It's really neat. Neat. Well, let's talk a bit about your book, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals, or M5, is it, for short. Uh, now, it's a beautifully presented book full of enchanting illustrations and, and poetry. Uh, it's been described, I was looking at the reviews on Amazon, one uh, reviewer described it as far denser and mysterious than I suspected, and then another said it was chock full of delights. 
Now, the um, stated target audience is kind of 8- to 12-year-old children, mm-hmm. but it, I would say it definitely rewards the adult reader as well. So how would you describe your book? Because this, it's a bit of an enigma. Mm-hmm. How would you describe this, and, and who were you writing it for? Yeah, it's a bit of a genre buster, but my, my idol, uh, my sort of poetic teen idol, Shakespeare, like he loves to bust genres up. So as a children's book, it's a bit of a, of a genre bust. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it a family book. I want it to be read aloud to younger children mm-hmm. by middle graders or above. Um, but it can also be read quietly by middle graders and above on their mm-hmm. own. Um, but I try to incorporate something for every age group. So there's a letter block at the beginning that has just the alphabet with an illustration of the little mythical mammal. So each letter of the alphabet introduces you to a new mythical mammal. Mm-hmm. And through that sort of seemingly casual series, there's also a story that unfolds with the letter B creature, the blug, and the letter D creature, the dally. But each letter block has a bunch of alliterative puns like the blug blowing bubbles with a brass bubble blower beneath a beautiful black and blue butterfly and a border of blue balloons. <laughs> right. Like, so littles can play with the alphabet. Like sure. They can see it and trace it with their fingers, but also do alliterative games mm-hmm. um, as they get a little cleverer about the letters. The poems themselves are in mostly tetrameter, although I definitely switch it up and do some much more complicated poetic work just to let people know that there's a higher register for poetry than just bestiary tetrameter. But there's a lot of fun rhymes and easy rhythms for kids mm-hmm. and memorizable poems for middle graders. But then there's a lot of uh, the themes of the art of poetry and philosophy, and there's even Christological allegory. I mean, I try to, I try not to dumb it down in terms of its depth, but I try not to overcomplicate it in terms of its shallows, right? So it can be entered like a swimming pool by each age group, and they can swim in the middle, shallow end, or the deep end. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of book that rewards rereading, having read the chapter on C, the Colvano. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading it, in a, and I don't want to, no spoiler alerts here, but right. I was like, hey, he's writing about a volcano. You know? Right, yeah, <laughs> kind of exactly. Deal. And then and then I went back and reread the poem again, and it's like, oh, this is this is charming. And I get where you're coming from. You say, you know, reading it out loud is much more rewarding as well. Right. There's There are a lot of ideas and concepts and even some jokes, but jokes that actually reveal some deeper thematics as well that will be found by reading it aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that's one of the things that poetry sort of forces you into is you have to be very kind of clever about life. Like, oh, I can't get this you know, refrigerator or this mattress down the stairs. Well, what if you turn it this way and then flip it over and then put it halfway out the window and then take the hinges off the doors and tilt it this way and open the doors. It's like that sort of like clever, like let's take something and turn it in a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. That's really part of how you come to know something truly well. Sure. Um, And that kind of fun and gamesmanship that I try to put into the books, it does, it's enjoyable and you kind of know you're being tooled or trolled a little like like something else happened here besides just this fuzzy mammal bounding about but over time hopefully it actually trains up your wit yeah which i think is it's a delightful like i hope I mean, you said it was i'm glad yeah. i tried you know i want it to be entertaining mildly amusing <laughs> but uh but there's more to it tolkien famously started the hobbit as a children's story for his children mm-hmm. does this come from your experience with your family does it flow out of this it does in the sense of seeing something I wanted for my family 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the beginnings of this were a private act uh, and, frankly, an imitation of Thomas More. I know it sounds kind of hokey, but when I was a young bachelor teacher, I taught a Thomas More in England program for the University of Dallas where we just studied him. And after the trip, the I read a whole biography on Moore, sort of more just, well, who is this guy? You know, mm-hmm. It was my first real taste of him. Uh, and I, I read A Portrait of Courage, and I devoured the thing in a couple nights. And, and uh, one of the things he did was he reads, or excuse me, he practices his writing uh, so that he can be good at communicating with everyone in whatever way they need. So he started practicing poetry, practicing history, practicing oratory, satire, dialogue, like just practicing the arts so that he could be a better friend and servant to all. And I was, this sort of blew my mind. You're like, gosh, I guess, I guess I probably, you know, shouldn't watch TV tonight. You know, sort <laughs> right, of like, right, right, right. What am maybe I Maybe there's something nobler I can do with my time. So I literally just, that's how the first poem, The Dally, who wound up being the focal point and the star of the whole thing, sort of in a hole, there lived a hobbit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The Dally, the letter D creature, this sort of seemingly very simple poem, was got started just in, as simple childlike imitation of someone I admired. You know? Wow. Um, now, in a style that I would describe as reminiscent of Dr. Seuss or Lewis Carroll, you play with language and you create fresh words and, and fresh twists and usages that revealed a deeper meaning to words that we may already know. You, of mm-hmm. course, then create uh, you know, new words on their own as well. You've helpfully included a glossary, which helps the readers navigate like pronunciations of some of the things. Right. Without it, I wouldn't have known how to say calendares, for example. Right. Um, but uh, the extensive glossary also includes entries explaining very common words, like uh, yet ironically in there, at which you quoted something from the play, Thomas, the book of Thomas More, uh, and said Shakespeare could never have written this. And I read it and I was like, is that an ironic comment in its own? <laughs> because it was written by Shakespeare. <laughs> so uh, so even that glossary is thought provoking. Uh, how would you say that, uh, that the inclusion of a glossary um, fits into your kind of authorial vision? So, yeah, that's a great question. One in part, this is a display speech. Uh, it's a kind of introduction. I mean, poets used to do this. Their first work was highly ornate, much more complicated than perhaps their next works, to sort of let everybody know, like, I did my homework. I know the craft. It's sort of like figure mm-hmm. skating. You know, that like everyone's technical. the technical side mm-hmm. first. And they don't really film it because it's kind of boring for TV in one sense. I mean, this I hope is not. It's beautifully illustrated. There's a lot going on. It but, really is. But there's, there's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a density to the, to the glossary to let people know, you know, not just for myself, but to teach them the liberal arts, the arts of poetry, the arts of rhetoric. There is a whole body of knowledge which 20th century powerfully evacuated mm-hmm. from our our common memory and I'm trying to bring the band back together. And so that's, that's the sort of like basic answer to that is I wanted there to be, I didn't want to just put out these gnomic funny baubles, right? Which would be entertaining and some people would get some of the jokes, but I wanted to provide more breadcrumbs, more threads for interpretation for, as I put in the daily, if you are one keen of eye who sits and stoops in storms, you'll spy. 
a dodgy dally dancing dry. I mean, there's things moving around through this crazy tempest of words and images. But I wanted to give people more of a handhold because I think other poets don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some do. I mean, there's examples we can point to in the tradition where this is this is a tradition. Like Spencer Shepard's calendar does exactly this with a glossary and these weird footnotes. They're way more complicated than what I did mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. Um, but uh, but I think they had a tradition of of study that people knew how to read these things. Sure, a common uh, shared vocabulary. Right, and I'm trying to help people back to that. Um, so this is. It was a decision. It was almost a heartbreaking decision to just put out these nomic sort of like who knows what the mysterious poet's doing or do you go for put your name on it, Mr. Meehan, like sort of an impresario and mm-hmm. you and, and a teacherly like, hi, I'm your friend. Let me counsel you. So here's a glossary with a lot of other information. You know, frankly, I think that's going to give it long-term lovability and intelligibility and help yeah. civil society, Western tradition and the church and the whole you know ball, ball of wax. But... But, uh, you know, it sort of makes it a little more school barmish, uh, <laughs> but it's worth it. Well, now you've also created a multimedia experience in a way that uh, that accompanies the book, for example, the website, which you direct people to both on the on the dust cover, um, right. where readers can actually hear the song that's performed in the V section, uh, the lullaby of La Baquita, beautifully mm-hmm. performed. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that that's going to make an appearance in the audiobook version. Oh yes, yeah, several versions. One I've got a that one, the, the one that's out there now, and then mm-hmm. I've got another sort of more elaborate version that's a little more highly produced. Okay. But I like the simple maternal one. Yeah, that we have. Now it's very beautiful, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But um, while visiting the website, I did I learned that the Bakita is a real mammal that is very much uh, like critically endangered right now that's like right less than 12 individuals there's of this probably porpoise. four mating pairs around left wow and they're all there in the in the uh, gulf of california that's right um, right so, off of the, the right off of san felipe so Bama. now how did you learn of the baquita and, and why did you include it in your book my father's an environmental administrator but he also just had a kind of a healthy love of nature shows and, you know, mm-hmm. nature and nature hikes. And so I was always kind of a greeny, you know, lover of animals and the environment and stuff like that. Um, but uh, so at some point, I don't know, just from that habit of keeping my ear to the ground about these things, I stumbled mm-hmm. upon the vaquita and five, six years ago. Um, and uh, and but then there was, you know, 250 of them left, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. so I said, oh, well. Why don't we think about including one not so mythical mammal that could slip into myth mm-hmm. um, and sort of as a sort of, hey, myths are about true things often that we've forgotten. And that's something that's part of the poetic tradition, that myth isn't just like fake. Yeah. Myth is truth that's sort of blurred a little because either it's too difficult and complicated a topic um, and too mysterious Right. Or there's a certain amount of like people are going to forget. So I'm going to put an image together that will help them remember. Mm-hmm. Also, I wanted the vaquita because the main theme of the book, if there is one, and I think it is that uh, how to fight sadness and loneliness through the art of friendship and joy and eventually through zeal, you know, the, the ardor of love. That's mm-hmm. The Z lion is the last mammal, the letter Z. Um and the Vaquita is the last challenge of sadness. 
Because extinct mammals, there's a sadness of like, I've lost something I was supposed to be in charge of and care for lovingly, and it's gone forever. Lost. That's the last challenge of sadness, I think, is essentially death, right? Things that go that can never come back. And how do you manage that kind of sorrow and sadness? Um, And I kind of wanted that experience couched inside of a book that has a lot of counsel and joy uh, and correctives to the worries that that presents. Um, But uh, I also just wanted a beautiful lullaby about a mother, you know, lamenting a mother missing her child. Um, You know, where are your babies? Uh, I think that's another whole metaphor that's Mm. worth considering. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, poetry can do more than one thing at once. And I try to do that in the Las Vaquitas lullaby. Well, now, where do you go from here? Is there another book or two up there in that uh, in that head of yours? Uh, well, you know, there's a part of me that's so exhausted on book tour and getting this one done that, that I almost want to go like, don't talk to me about that. No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there's another um, there's another couple books. We might do a teacher's edition of this um, as well. But uh, an audio book of this. So there's a few more sort of related products to this. But there is another one. Um, the two major sort of passions, if you can sum up complex, passionate issues. that And the poets are supposed to help with passions. They train, mm-hmm. they train the heart. So I take that actually as a charge, like almost like a social job for a poet. Like it's one of the things you should be worried about. Your vocation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. A calling. Um, but so sadness is one. The other one is wrath, right? Shakespeare always talked about this. That guy's either going to drown or hang, right? Drown in sadness, like the Nole, the letter N creature, or hang, hang because he lost it and they, they had to kill him, mm-hmm. right? So they had to string him up on, the, on a gibbet, right? So my, I have another book, which I'm not going to talk about in detail, but there's another idea. It's going to be something much simpler because... For sadness, there is sort of like a dalliance, like a dally <laughs> that mm-hmm. you, you take your time with things. You maybe go a little too slow, your curiosity. So this book is to be picked through. It's complex. People who have problems with wrath, they can't abide this. You know, like right. I, I don't want to have to look up a word, you know. Yeah. So the next book is actually going to be much simpler, but it's going to, my hope is, be have a kind of profundity of depth that answers that kind of theme. Um, that's all the theory behind it, and I, but I'm not ready to tell yeah. you much more at this no, point. That's okay. <laughs> that uh, That's also the other part of the poet is to uh, leave us wanting more. Right? Yes, well said. <laughs> well, Mr. Meehan, thank you very much for coming to be with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Mr. Meehan. Learn more about his new book, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals, in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. 
We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.